Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced on Wurundjeri land at 3CR Studios in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast all around this continent on the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. On today's show, we look at the dramatic cuts to the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, the CSIRO, and the effects that this will have on climate science research, both here and internationally. And then later in the show, we'll be dipping into the archives to celebrate 20 years of Earth Matters on the air. My name is Anthony Keenan, and I'm a spokesperson for the CSIRO Staff Association. Thanks so much for joining us on the line for Earth Matters. In February, the new chief executive of the CSIRO, Larry Marshall, announced a pretty radical restructure and change of priorities for Australia's peak scientific research organisation. Can you run us through these announced changes? Yeah, so part of the announcement that Marshall made uh, was that there were going to be an additional 350 job cuts. And uh, bear in mind that the CSIRO has already lost about 1,300 jobs over the past two and a half years, which um, is essentially one in five jobs, so about 20, 20% of the workforce. So there was this shock announcement of uh, an additional 350 um, where everyone had felt that um, you know, staffing had, had stabilised after that very, very heavy cut. Um, but um, I suppose the disturbing aspect of the announcement, uh, especially for your listeners, were uh, the fact that a lot of those cuts were going to be felt in uh, the areas that research into the climate uh, and to uh, the oceans. So in the oceans and atmospheric flagship, roughly about half of those 350 um, were said to have come out of there, um, about 110 or 120. Uh, The other great um, uh, sort of bulk of the cuts are going to be felt in in a separate part of CSIRO called Land and Water. And... We'll also see some cuts uh, coming out of um, research to do with manufacturing, uh, mineral research, and also digital productivity. The cuts to the oceans and atmospheric unit have raised the most concern publicly. Now, it hasn't just uh, raised protest in Australia, but also internationally. There was a letter uh, co-signed by almost 3,000 researchers internationally that was recently sent to the Prime Minister and the um, and CSIRO's board. Is that correct? That's correct. So, yeah, that's the international uh, condemnation and criticism of these cuts to climate science has been quite breathtaking. Um, in some respect, it's reflective of the world-leading role that uh, Australia plays with this type of climate research and the fact that Australian researchers... Uh, have really been at the forefront of, of climate research, and that's got to do essentially uh, not just with uh, the capacity um, of organisations like the CSIRO to be able to do this research, and bear in mind it's been going on for several decades, but Australia is uniquely um, positioned geographically with its proximity to the Southern Ocean, the Great Southern Ocean, and also to Antarctica to really um, to be able to 
you know, provide, I suppose, the other half of, of, of the atmospheric um, and climate research that, that's done in the Northern Hemisphere. So there's always been great collaboration between uh, climate science scientists around the world. I think in some respects that explains why there was such an outcry. But it's not just um, the scientists who are, who are upset um, the, uh, the decision to cut uh, CSIRO climate science has uh, drawn condemnation from people such as Al Gore, uh, the uh, two major science journals, uh, Nature and Science magazine, have been covering cuts to CSIRO for a number of years now, sadly. Um, so they've weighed in. And uh, front page of the New, the New York Times, with an editorial as well, uh, calling the, the cuts quite short-sighted and uh, misunderstanding the importance of this type of basic science, making the point, essentially, that... The world, the world needs this sort of research now more than ever, and that any decision to, you know, cut climate research uh, in the way that's being uh, proposed is, uh, you know, essentially a step in the wrong direction. Now, many of the jobs that have been cited for for cutting have been in Hobart, as well as at CSRO's sites in uh, Victoria and Canberra. The union staged a protest uh, on Tuesday, the 8th of March, uh, in Hobart. Can you tell us about that? Yes, of course. So there was a really great turnout, um, about 400 people, uh, which is a really good number, really good uh, participation uh, in Hobart. Uh, There were CSIRO uh, scientists. There were also uh, colleagues there from the um, Australian Antarctic Division, which has um, a big presence in Canberra as well, the Bureau of Meteorology, um, and a lot of other science um, organisations down there. Hobart's a bit of a, uh, a hub for scientific research, not just into things like climate and, and, and the Antarctic and you know, around the Great Southern Ocean, but also got to do with, you know, it's quite a, a fair bit of medical research down there and that type of thing. So there was a big turnout um, from... Uh, from colleagues in the scientific community, also uh, colleagues in the public sector, uh, CSIRO being uh, you know, funded um, and uh, uh, in large part by government uh, funding. And um, there are also lots of uh, students and young people. Um, the Australian Youth Climate um, Coalition um, was instrumental with the CPSU, the Community and Public Sector Union, in uh, organising that rally and also with support from um, both Labor and, and the Greens, who um, who had uh, speakers there. And uh, indeed, it was to coincide with a Senate um, uh, inquiry uh, into these cuts. Uh, there's a standing Senate committee into budget measures, and um, it decided to investigate um, these cuts um, a little bit further. And um, so we... All day, essentially, um, we had senators from the uh, from the Greens and also from the Labor Party uh, quizzing a whole bunch of people regarding the impact of these cuts, including the CSIRO. And um, there was a rally to um, uh, to coincide with that. Interestingly, um, no representation either at the rally or at the uh, hearings from any um, members of uh, the government. So no Liberal or National Party representatives turned up. Um, to either the rally or to the hearings. As you said, the Senate Select Committee was meeting in Hobart. Uh, Now the 
CSIRO's um, director, Alex uh, Wanhouse, told the Senate committee that exact numbers expected to be lost uh, in uh, across Hobart, uh, Victoria's Aspendale site, and uh, also in Canberra, would be finalised by the end of March. It's been suggested uh, in some outlets that other Commonwealth agencies, such as the Bureau of Meteorology or um, Australian Antarctic Division and other similar or perhaps allied uh, agencies, might be able to absorb uh, some of the redundancies and, and pick up the slack for, for CSIRO's research that's going to be cut. Is is that a fair assumption to make? Um, I don't think so. I don't think that you can look at um, funding to the Bureau of Meteorology, for example, and say that it's at a point where um, they've you know, got the resources to be able to absorb any excess capacity. I mean, there's cuts happening at the Bureau of Meteorology you know, at the moment in terms of their jobs. Um, likewise, um, I think that um, in the university sector, especially the research um, side of things, um, that there isn't um, a lot of um, you know, excess space to pick up people. I think that you know, there might be a case of where there might be individuals who might be sort of highly sought after and in demand because of their credentials might be able to find a home somewhere else. But um, the reality is, is that this research is unique. Um, it's very much in the public good. Um, it's uh, funded uh, through um, you know, direct investment from CSIRO via government funding, but also through partnerships with other government departments or other sort of um, corporate partners. Um, but by and large, it's not you know commercially orient- oriented research um, insofar as that it's designed to turn it to a profit. Essentially, what it is there for is for us to basically develop a greater and more comprehensive understanding of what's happening in terms of climate change and then be able to use that knowledge to then come up with different methods regarding adaptation or to be able to update models or look at trends so that, you know, we can start to make policy in other areas um, to deal with climate change um, with all the information uh, that is at our disposal. And so that's the reason why there's a lot of concern about these cuts to the climate um, area in particular is because, in a sense, what you're what you're doing is you're taking away um, information that would otherwise use, uh, be used by policymakers to come up with um, a way of dealing with climate change. So if you can imagine, um, you know, climate change is, you know, it's like driving at night with the lights off. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense, essentially. We're, we're impairing our ability to be able to forecast the future um, by monitoring climate. And um, that's why you're seeing a lot of um, uh, condemnation, not just from people within the science community, uh, but a lot of people, I think, around the country and around the world that would have heard about this who would be just shaking their heads saying it doesn't make sense. Speaking of, of climate data, we now know that 2015 was the hottest year on record, uh, smashing out 2014 that was previously the hottest year on record globally since... It just keeps uh, on going up, doesn't it? It just keeps on going up. Sounds like there might be a trend there. <laughs> and, of course, in Australia as well, October was our hottest month on record um, yeah. as an average. 
so Larry Marshall, the new CEO, has suggested that climate science is relatively well known now and that uh, this sort of research maybe isn't as important as uh, adaptation, uh, which you've mentioned. But if we can maybe just flesh out uh, what areas and what uh, industries are particularly going to be affected by a cut to this research. You mentioned, obviously, that, you know, in terms of policy and uh, yeah. adaptation planning, but, you know, I'm thinking, what about farming? What about water yeah. management? Maybe if you yeah. can give us some examples there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I have to comment just in regards to Dr. Marshall's comment about um, the science being settled, so therefore we don't need to do the research. I think that's just sophistry um, and quite and proven to be quite incorrect by people who work in the field. Um, so if you want to come up with uh, ways in, uh, to uh, adapt to um, the challenges that climate change uh, is bringing about, why would you stop actually measuring the impact of climate change? Uh, surely having as much information as possible we can then feed into ensuring that your adaptation methods are um, are as uh, um, effective as possible. Um, so, I think that that was um, that was a very um, um, disingenuous thing for him to say. Um, of course, he did go on to say later on in another interview uh, that he felt as though the reaction um, was uh, similar to you know um, the early climate scientists. Of scientists of the 70s, you know, came up against the oil industry and that, you know, he felt as though that climate change was more of a religion than a science in terms of the the debate and uh, he got roundly castigated for that and was forced to apologise. But, yeah, in terms of adaptation, in terms of uh, climate research, where, where are the areas which are particularly uh, exposed? Yes, you mentioned uh, agriculture, definitely. Um, so anything to do with uh, the management of the land and the Activity um, uh, regarding sort of agricultural or um, any other type of uh, yields, uh, sorry, um, primary resources uh, such as cattle or whatever the case might be. Having climate information on climate can help farmers essentially better you know, adapt to um, to the changes that are amongst them, and um, and of course the climate feeds into all the other areas of science um, that. Uh, CSIRO and uh, other um, organisations perform. It's interesting that you mentioned water because uh, the other uh, uh, area that's going to be hardest hit by these proposed cuts is land and water. So water management and, and irrigation and all these types of things, that's, in there, that's another area that could potentially be at risk. Um, the problem is um, that we don't know the extent of these cuts because CSIRO have still yet to determine exactly where they're going to fall. We've got a general idea of the areas they've mapped out uh, in terms of those flagships that I mentioned, so oceans and atmosphere, land and water, digital productivity, manufacturing and mineral resources, but we don't know the actual positions that are being identified for potential redundancy and the research, that the specific research that's going to be affected. And this is quite staggering really because it's a more than a month now since the initial announcement um, and they're still unable, management is still unable a month after an announcement to actually say these jobs are at risk, this research is at risk. Uh, they've still, um, I think we had uh, testimony yesterday from 
um, the chief scientist at the Australian Antarctic Division, who said that um, in terms of their program uh, leaders within the division, um, that they had still, and they do obviously a lot of climate you know, um, research and collaborate with CSIRO, um, those program directors within the, the Australian Antarctic Division still hadn't been spoken to by CSIRO. Uh, places like the Bureau of Meteorology only found out a day before. The CSIRO board was only formally notified uh, two days before. Um, now, um, it's just, it, it seems as though this is a decision that's been, that's been rushed, or at least the announcement of it has been rushed, um, and that um, they're really just sort of making it up as they go along. So it's a complete mess and it's a complete shambles in regards to um, how it's being um, rolled out. So regardless of whether or not you feel as though these, you know, these cuts are justified or not um, on policy grounds, uh, the way in which they've been communicated, the way in which they've been um, uh, uh, the, the various stakeholders, um, the other organisations, but also the staff of the CSIRO have been treated has just been appalling. It's been an absolute um, sham from start to finish. For listeners who are concerned about the CSIRO's ability to conduct public interest science, how might they support uh, your campaign? How might they support uh, uh, also your members, either uh, through public actions or through their yeah. own unions? Thank you, Tishan. It's a great question. Um, yes, of course, um, we're receiving some great support um, across the community. And I want to thank everybody, um, anyone of your listeners that's um, either been active on social media um, or has, um, has expressed some concern um, or has even just talked about it to, uh, to a friend or to a family member. That all helps um, that type of uh, um, 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 awareness um, that we're trying to build. Um, I think is um, is starting to build, take, get some momentum. But I want, I want to thank anyone, every anyone that's already, you know, sort of done something to support us. Um, even a kind word or um, a word of support that really helps a lot, and it means a lot to the staff as well. Um, yeah, so there was we've had uh, rallies in Canberra and also in Hobart, um, as you mentioned. Um, there is one planned in Melbourne uh, for the second of April on Saturday. Uh, so details of that will be. Um, We'll come together um, over the next, uh, next couple of weeks. Um, if you go onto Facebook and look for Support CSIRO, um, you should be able to find our page um, and then I think plans to do something in Sydney later on. Anthony Keenan from the CSIRO Staff Association. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network.
2016 marks 20 years of Earth Matters, bringing you grassroots environmental news from a local, national and international perspective. And this year also marks 40 years of 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne. And to mark this, we'll be taking a look back to some Earth Matters programming highlights. Here's Juliet Fox from 2001. Hello and welcome to Environmental Issues on Earth Matters. I'm Juliet Fox and today we celebrate International Women's Day for 2001. On the program we're going to hear from a range of women across the country discussing how feminism affects their environmental activism. We'll speak to women who work on uranium mining, native forest logging, Asia-Pacific concerns, as well as several green politicians about how their feminist principles impact on their environmental campaigning. So, happy International Women's Day and do stay tuned. Nationally, you're listening to Earth Matters. My name's Indira Narayan. I'm turning 30 this year. I've uh, done a lot of environmental activism and other social justice campaigning um, for the last, I suppose, 10 years almost. Um, at the moment I work with Friends of the Earth and also do a lot of things at 3CR and uh, my main focus has been over the last few years nuclear and mining campaigning work um, particularly working with Indigenous people around Australia and also working on other land justice campaigns. So how does feminism affect my environmental activism? Well my idea of of a feminist world is one where people have a lot more access to the resources that they re- they need for for um, a fair life, um, and I suppose that means that um, my perspective on environmental activism includes um, communities and and how they interact with their environment, and you can't separate off the environment from people. So, a world um, with that includes feminist ideologies for me means that. Um, people and the environment are both respected as one, um, that people in living in an environment interact with it and you can't treat one without looking at what impacts um, on the other. So as an environmental activist, I also work on social justice issues and that means that I'm not going to call for um, a wilderness area, for example, to be declared because that implies that people have no place within that environment. And when you look at things... Um, all those declarations within Australia, for example, or for anywhere else around the world. There's very few places around the world that have never had people living within them. And so for me, when um, conservation areas are declared, you need to have um, people interested in what's going on there and empowered to protect that, that environment as well. And they also then need to be able to be, uh, to be given access or to be allowed to have access to um, to resources that they require, as long as that is um, looking at what the earth can can sustain. So a sustainable economy and a sustainable environment will um, will would be a sustainable society. And so when I'm when I do my work as an environmental activist, I basically I suppose I just look at how. Um, people and the environment work together and um, long-term solutions for a socially just environment. My name is Dimity Hawkins. I'm a community activist. I work with a range of groups uh, in Melbourne and also overseas every now and again. Um, 
talking about how feminism affects my environmental activism, there's a few things that come to mind. One is um, the methodologies that I use in my environmental activism are drawn a lot from feminism, the consensus-based um, decision-making, uh, conflict resolution, those kinds of things that are used all the time in environmental activism, in training, in in performing actions, in getting across to the media, in all sorts of different ways, um, those sort of skills come into it. Also, things like skill sharing, um, which is a, a basis of feminism as well, feminist practice, is to, to share skills around, to make sure that people are trained up, that kind of thing. So that comes well into work that I've done as an environmental activist as well. On another level, though, um, Feminism influences my environmental politics through the fact that I don't just look at the environment um, as it, itself. You know, I don't just look at trees and say that's it, that's the environment. You know, I don't just look at uranium mining and say, oh, it's really nasty radioactive material that when it's dug up, it can be made into weapons and it can be made into nuclear power and it ends up as waste. It also affects people's lives. So there's a whole social justice element which is brought into environmental activism through an understanding and a practice of feminism. From the archives there, we heard the voices of Indira Narayan and Dimity Hawkins. Part of an International Women's Day 2001 Earth Matters special. Produced by Juliet Fox. And thanks to Corey Green for digitising that one. If you're in Melbourne and would like to hear more great archival audio... Come along to the If People Powered Radio 40 Years of 3CR exhibition. It's running from the 18th of March to the 23rd of April at Gertrude Contemporary Gallery in Fitzroy. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters is syndicated to community radio stations around this continent by the Community Radio Network, and the program is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Kulin Nation. You can contact us on 03 9419 8377 or earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. I hope you can tune in next week for more Earth Matters. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.